then the song rose to even greater heights as it described how our delight in his love can rise to such intensity that we must beg him to stop. That was in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 7. This was followed by a description of his wonderful visits, where he was depicted as leaping across the mountains to get to us like a gazelle, coming fleet of foot, and then warmly calling us out of our, overcoming our shyness, calling us out to come and be with him. And our sense that we would want these visits to continue forever. That was in chapter 2, verse 8 through 17. Then in chapter 3, there was a time when, without explanation, he withdrew from us for a season, causing us to seek him, but also to quickly find him. That was in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. In chapter 3, verse 6 through 11, he is seen as the great king who openly and publicly receives us as his bride, who makes his public covenant commitment to us. Remember, she came in on the palanquin and was brought to him to be his bride. And in 4, 1 through 5, 2, we were taken aback by his praise of our beauty to him as his bride. And by the delight that he said he has, even from one glance from us. We talked about that. I explained that that even the tiny beginnings of our love for Christ is most precious to him because it is the result of his all-powerful work of salvation in our life. He loves to see the progress of his saints we saw how we are depicted as his garden where he grows the fruit that he delights in with his skillful and powerful hands, his wise hands. He knows what to do. The song shows how all this makes us want to bring forth fruit for him even more. We're encouraged that he is delighted with even a little bit of fruit in us and that he is able to work and, 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 and bring about those good things that he desires. So we want him then, and we invite him to come and enjoy the fruit that we bring forth, the fruit, fruit that we, that, of new life that comes through his saving work. But then in chapter 5, verse 2, we saw the description of a time when we grew cold and unwelcoming toward him. This is all too common in the church's experience. We find it recounted all through the Bible. We lose our first love. We grow frigid toward Him, our gracious divine husband, Jesus Christ. In 5, 2 through 3, we are shown to be unwilling to trouble ourselves enough to to, to be intimate with Him, even to the point of leaving Him out in the cold night and refusing to be bothered to open the door. In 5.4, he arouses us so that we do get up and we go to him with eager desire, the myrrh dripping from our hands, as it says, to open to him only to find that he is gone. That was in 5.5-6. He has withdrawn from us in order to teach us a lesson. We are then depicted as going out in the night to find him, searching for him eagerly, but unrewarded in our quest. Yet, 
in that quest, growing stronger and stronger in our desire to be with him as we seek him. That was in chapter 5, verse 7 through 16, until at last he returns to us and we find ourselves in his arms again, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3. What happens next is where we are now, and it is wonderful. Starting last week, chapter 6, verse 4 through, through 13, here we have a description of how he reassures us after we are back in his arms that he still loves us just as much as he did before we were rude to him. Last week, we looked at the first part of this in verses 4 through 9, where he told us how attractive we were to him even during the time that he kept himself apart from us to to chasten us. He explains that he could not keep himself away in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, that we are still as lovely to him as we ever were in chapter 6, 5 through 7, where he uses the same words to describe us that he had to praise us as he had back in chapter 4, and that we are his only bride, which he emphasizes in 6, 8, and 9. He does not want the great nations of the earth, the queens and the concubines and all the impressive peoples of the earth. He wants his bride, the one that he has saved from their sins. Those are the ones that he delights in as his only bride. He doesn't have another bride. He didn't go looking for another bride, even when we had rudely rebuffed him as we did. He said much in those verses to reassure us, but he knows us. He knows what we're like. He knows that even when we return to his arms after a time of declension and are in his arms, we're still quite insecure as his bride, still wondering if he really accepts us or not, if he really loves us as much as he did before our declension. So he does not stop at verse 9, where we stopped last week. We stopped because we were out of time, so there was only so much that we could do in, in, in that week. But he continues on to the end of verse 13. And even beyond that, as we'll see in uh, future weeks, shed on the cross, that is the foundation of our acceptance with him. But here in the song, he shows us, he gives us the relational experience side of our acceptance. That's why we need the Song of Solomon. Justification is the forensic or legal ground of our acceptance But joy in the embrace of Jesus as his wife is the relational expression of that acceptance. Some people want to have the relational expression without the ground of justification. But if we have the ground of justification, we should also desire to have the relational expression. He wants us to have both. That's why in our Bible, we have the book of Romans, for example, that tells us about legally how we are justified and made right with him by the shedding of his blood on the cross. We have Leviticus and books like that. But then we also have a book like the Song of Solomon that tells us about the relational side of that relationship. So let's pick up our reading at verse 10, chapter 6, verse 10, and we'll read to verse 13. This is the word of God. Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 10 through 13. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? 
I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite? As it were, the dance of two camps. And there we end the reading of God's holy and infallible word. Let's look at how he continues to reassure us of our full acceptance, his full acceptance of us, despite our former rejection of him. In verse 10, he uses yet another illustration of his present delight in us. He describes how we, his bride, stand out as light in an otherwise dark world. He uses a question to show our unique character. He says, Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The question is a kind of exclamation. It's like saying, you know, who is this? You know, you're not really asking a question, but you're saying, look at, look at this one. Who is this? And describing what they're like. Look at her. He begins by describing us as she who looks forth as the morning. Interestingly, the words look forth refer to looking down as from a window or looking down even from the sky. Here the picture is of morning light looking down upon the face of the earth as it shines upon the, the, morning, the morning light, bringing in a new day that is, to use the words of James Durham, both lightsome and refreshing, cheering and lovely, as it is the end of darkness. Light has come, you see. The dawning of morning was, of course, a much more significant event before the days of electricity. The bride of Christ is like that light coming into the world. She introduces light where light was not. She is the people in the world who represent the true and living God, the bride of Jesus. She is the one cherished and redeemed by Christ, a people that show the whole world what the Father is really like because they have been reconciled to Him by the cross. They show forth then just by being the people of God reconciled by Jesus Christ on the cross, they show God's holiness, His justice, His wisdom, His vindictive wrath, His sovereignty, His power, His mercy, His love, His grace, all in a place, this world, where He was unknown because of sinful suppression of Him, all in a place where apart from her, he would still be unknown. What joy it gave to Jesus to see his little flock called to be witnesses to the true and living God shining across the face of the earth, the dawn going forth and bringing light around the world. How glad we ought to be to shine our light as his witnesses in this dark world. Next, he describes us, his bride, as those who are fair as the moon. 
Here again, we are shown to be conspicuous, like the great luminary of the night. The moon stands out in the night sky. In the night, it is the moon that stands above, out above all the stars, even though it is only reflective light. So Christ's bride stands out to him as light in a world that is darkness. As the moon, we are but reflected light, but how fair is the word used here. Remember that word we've run into before that could be translated lovely or beautiful? Is that light in the night. The bride is the one in whom the image of God is being renewed in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Largely that the image of God is seen in her love for him, who Jesus, her husband, who is the exact image of God in human form with whom she has union. Yes, with him, we are a household of light, beautiful to our Savior, whose house we are, and who is the builder of that house. How fair is his house, where his bride loves him and lives in beautiful obedience and submission to him. Well, that's the second way that we're shown to be light in the dark place. Third, he describes us, his bride, as those who are clear as the sun. The Hebrew word clear, translated clear, is actually used in verse 9, just above. In an unusual way, you'd be surprised, where it's translated favorite. The daughter who is the favorite of her mother. It is not used all that commonly in the scriptures, but it is used elsewhere, and it is translated elsewhere by the word pure, as in Psalm 19.8, which is familiar to us, where it says that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Or Psalm 24.4, or Psalm 73.1, where it speaks of those who have a pure heart. In Proverbs 14.4, it is translated by the word clean, describing the, uh, an oxen stall where there are no oxen, <laughs> that it is clean. The word blends then, this word that's used here of the sun, blends the idea of favored with the idea of purity. Favored, chosen with the idea of clean and pure. The sun is the most brilliant light in the world. It is unspotted pure light such as is found nowhere else. And such is the bride of Jesus Christ because of his redeeming work. Was she cold toward him? She was indeed. She was rude. She was cold. But still, she is the one who is the brilliant light that he has brought forth in the world by his saving grace. By his saving work, she is still without spot or blemish through his atoning sacrifice and according to the promise of what he is going to do in her when he brings her to perfection at the last day in pure and complete holiness. There is no other son, there is no other bride, but one in the world, those that he has redeemed. The fourth thing that is mentioned in verse 10, here he describes again of, of being, he, I'm sorry, here he describes us again, of being as awesome as an army with banners. I say again because we saw that back in verse 4. We saw that it speaks of her, the bride of us, as a force that had overpowered him, a force that he could not resist 
because she had rebuffed him when he had come to her, he had withdrawn from her to show her how unacceptable her conduct had been. He had done that to chasten her for a time. He had determined that he would stay away for a time to allow her desire for him to be strengthened even more before he returned. But once her love was rekindled, her yearning for him was so overpowering to him because of his love for her that he had to beg her to turn away. That's what we saw back in verse 5. Turn away from me, for you have overcome me. She was like a terrifying or an awesome army that he could not resist. Such is his great love and desire to be with her. And of course, he loved to be overcome in that way. (laughs) It is his work in us that produced that fruit that he delights in that makes him have such a desire to be with us. Again, this is the relational side of his relationship with us that he delights to be with us. Okay, this description of her as an army with banners is repeated, you see, in verse 10, to show how she stands out in the world of darkness above all others. Love for the Savior, love for God, does not exist in this world apart from Christ's saving work. Only in those that He has redeemed do those fruits exist. And that is what makes His bride stand out above all others and what makes her like an awesome, terrifying army to her enemies and even to him, one that he cannot resist because of the beauty of her love and his desire for her. In, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus explains to us, now that we have been restored to his arms, what he was doing while he was separated from us. He also explains how he was brought back to us. So you see, this is important for us. We're we're back in his arms now, but insecure. And he's explaining, what what were you doing when you were away from us, when we were seeking you and you you did not come to us? During his withdrawal, he tells us here that he was actually watching over us the whole time. He was watching intently, in fact, to see if our affection for him had been rekindled. In verse 11, he says, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Now, the New King James Version indicates that the bride is speaking here, but there is no indication of that in the grammar. There's nothing in the grammar of masculine, feminine, or anything like that to tell us who is speaking. It's just a speculative thing that they have said. Most commentators who understand the song allegorically, most of the Reformed commentators, Matthew Henry, Matthew Poole, George Burroughs, James Durham, they all understand this to be him speaking rather than the bride. So I've told you before, you can ignore those, those headings that they have in the Song of Solomon and the New King James. They're not part of the inspired text. What we have here then is him watching over us to see if his withdrawal from us has had its desired effect upon us. He wants to see if it has caused us to cause our love for him to bud and bloom again. In other words, we were cold toward him, we repulsed him, 
and then he withdrew and after we were desiring him again. He wants to see that love grow and develop. He wants to see if she is ready, if his bride is ready to receive him now, if the time has come for him to again manifest his love to her because he withdraws it for a time to, to chasten us. We should be greatly encouraged to know that even when the Lord has withdrawn for a time, for whatever reason, He is never far from us. He doesn't show Himself to us, but He's not far from us. He is always there with His loving concern and care, watching over us, watching our progress, and working to ensure that we continue to grow and flourish. He never ceases to tend to His garden. He checks. He guards us to make sure that nothing will by any means harm his bride. He hears all our prayers and he counts all our tears at that time. In all our afflictions, he is afflicted. He is never aloof. Be encouraged that this is true even when we have greatly sinned. Certainly it is true in those times such as Job had when he said, I look for him here and I look for him there, but I cannot find him. He didn't have a sense of God's nearness. Jesus was still near to him. But it's also true when we have greatly sinned. Even if we have done some great sin like David with his adultery that he then tried to cover up, resorting even to murder. And then instead of repenting, he went on avoiding the Lord for uh, the better part of a year. Even when he is chasing us and showing an angry face to us, he is still watching over us closely and tenderly caring for us. At the bottom of it all, he is still unrelentingly committed to us and watching eagerly for signs of our repentance. In verse 12, he explains how he is watching over us. He found that, that, I'm sorry, he explains that as he was watching over us, that he found himself powerfully drawn to us, to return to us. Look at verse 12. He says, before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Now, this is one of the most difficult verses in the Song of Solomon to interpret. Many say the most difficult verse in the song. So allow me to break this down a little bit as we, as we consider what it's saying. First, you have the words, before I was even aware. What is that talking about? They show how rapidly he was drawn back to us when he came to inspect us as his garden. No sooner had he looked than he saw that in this case, our strong yearning, he saw our strong yearning for him and realized that it was the time for love, that that time had already come. He realized that we had learned our lesson and that we were ready to receive him, that if he came to us now, that we would receive him. Next, the words, my soul, in the phrase, my soul had made me. What do those words refer to? The words, my soul, refer to the whole person here. All that he is, his entire self, was moved toward his bride when he saw her affection for him as he looked at her as his garden. Next, what do the words, my soul made me as the chariots, mean? Well, the words made me as the chariots can also be translated, set me on the chariots. 
So those are two possible ways of translating it. The idea is that his soul either got on a chariot or became a chariot whose purpose was either to bring him to his bride if he got on the chariot or to bring his bride to him if she got on the chariot, him being the chariot, to bring them together swiftly who had been separated. Now understand that because we're not speaking of physical distance, but of distance in a figurative way, distance that was between us and him relationally, the point is that he who is keeping himself apart from us relationally in order to, to, uh, to strengthen our affection for him, till our affection was sufficiently rekindled, that he was now wanting to make haste to close that gap because he saw that our affection was sufficiently rekindled. So either he will get on his chariot and come to us, or he will, uh, or he will, he will bring us on the chariot to him. Either way, it has the same result. So he is telling us now that we are in his arms again, how he can't stay away from us. And finally, what do the words of my noble people mean in the phrase chariots of my noble people? Some interpreters believe it simply refers to the quality and speed of the chariots, that they are the fine chariots such as noble people would own, chariots that get you there where you're supposed to go quickly and efficiently. There certainly is an eagerness that is depicted here to close the gap between him and us, that whole idea of the chariot being something swift. But I think there is more than that in these words. The word noble is nadib in Hebrew. It is often translated prince. It speaks of a person who acts of free volition because that one is a prince. In other words, they don't have other people directing them and telling them what to do, but they act, it's used in a good way. They act freely, their generosity, it's often used of generosity, freely giving to others. It's used in, this word is used in an interesting way in Psalm 110, verse 3, where Jesus says, my people will be volunteers in the day of my power. So volunteers, they'll be willing ones, they'll be princes that, that freely and, and voluntarily come and, and give. So, so this opens up a beautiful interpretation here for us that the bride's yearning or our yearning as the bride for Christ is the chariot that conveys him back to us to end the separation. Do you see? It's it, the yearning that we have. It's like we send out a chariot when we, when we call on his name and say, Lord, oh Lord, return to us. We're going to be singing Psalm 80 later this afternoon. We're, we're yearning for him to come. And we, we have already seen that it was his touch that gave us this unrelenting yearning for him ever since we rose to open for him in the in, back back in uh, chapter five but it is christ's own work that that gave us this yearning but now this yearning of ours is the chariot that brings him back to us he was waiting for that fruit to develop and grow for the pomegranates and the to, to bud and, and for the flowers to blossom. He has seen that work, has re, that, that his work has rekindled our affection for him so that we are ready to receive him now. 
our yearning for him is the chariot that his soul is set on that brings him back to us, that brings us together again. Now, here is how a couple of commentators summarize this verse for us. James Durham explains the whole like this. Here is set down how suddenly he was transported with affection to his bride while he is viewing her graces in his absence from her. He is so taken with love to her that he can stay no longer from her. Matthew Henry says Christ could not long content himself with this this separation he's he's referring to. It's not in, in his words, but Christ could not long content himself with this separation from her, but suddenly felt a powerful, irresistible inclination in his own bosom to return to his church. As his spouse, being moved with her lamentations after him and her languishing desires toward him. This is super encouraging. Our Lord is showing us here that he cannot endure to be separated from us once he sees that our desires for him have been rekindled. What an encouragement it it is to us to see that those desires are rekindled. For us to pray and to plead with him to return to us. Matthew Henry also comments that no chariot sent for Christ shall return empty. In other words, as I pray, I am sending out a chariot to him, expressing my desire to be restored to him, to be back with him when there's a separation. It's a chariot going forth to pick up Christ. And Henry says that chariot will never come back empty. Christ will always come back in that chariot. We send out the chariot to call him to return to us, and he gets on the chariot and he comes. Last week, you remember, we saw how Jacob would not let go of the Lord until he blessed him, and how the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel because as a prince, Jacob had prevailed with him. He had overcome him. Our Lord comes as on our yearning prayers as on a swift chariot so that once again we are in his arms loving him and being loved by him. So you see what he's done here. He's explained, this is what I was doing while I was away. I was checking you to see if my separation from you had had its effect in producing the yearning desires. As a wise gardener, he was working, he's checking on his garden. And it, he says, I was, I was, I, before I was even aware, I was drawn to you when I saw that those desires had been rekindled, had been cultivated in you. And so I came to you as on a chariot, like your, your desire was like a chariot that, that drew my soul back to you. So here we are in his arms. Our Lord tells us that our rekindled love has brought him back to us. Now that we are again in his arms, he tenderly tells us, that we need not hold back or hesitate. In verse 13, he insists that we return to him without holding anything back. He wants to make sure that we come with complete assurance that he will not reject us. He wants to come with us, us to come without restraint or fear of his rejection. Look at how strong his appeal is. He repeats the call to return four times. 
This is verse 13. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return. I told you before there's something that's repeated in Hebrew. It's to emphasize it. This is repeated four times. And we're already in his arms, as it were. So we're back to him, and he's saying now he wants a full return, a complete return, not a partial return. Nothing partial, nothing uncertain, nothing hesitant. The quarrel is over. His acceptance of us is full and complete. That is what justification does. It completely clears the record of all the wrongs that we have ever done. The record is clean. You can come to your Lord and give yourself wholly to Him with complete abandon. That's what He calls you to do. Return, return, O Shulamite. Return, return. Notice how He calls us Shulamite here. What is that all about? Well, I've explained to you before that this name Shulamite is the feminine form of the word Solomon. Solomon means Prince of Peace, one of the names that our Lord Jesus Christ has. And Shulamite is our, is our name when we marry him. The feminine form of that, princess of peace. So you have Solomon, prince of peace, married to Shulamite, princess of peace. We become a people of shalom. The rich Hebrew word that we can hardly translate in English because we need too many words to do it, that refers to, yes, peace, the way it's usually translated, but also includes the idea of, of wholeness, of completeness, of, of fullness and healthiness, of really being, ha- having and being all that life is meant to be in, in paradise. It's the, the, the wholeness, the completeness that God gives to his people. So he is that whole one, that prince of peace, of shalom, and we are, through union with him, the princess of peace, you see. It is from the Bible that we have the tradition of a wife taking her husband's name when she marries him. She enters into his household. When Manel and Holly got married, then Holly's name was changed from from Holly Wicks to Holly Christian, which is his last name. When God brought Eve to Adam to be his wife, Adam was was man, Ish. Adam said, Ish said, she shall be called Isha, woman, because she was taken out of man. So Ish named the one who was taken from him Isha. It's like man, woman, really, except the, it's on the front instead of the back is the addition. And in Genesis 5, 1 through 2, the scripture tells us that God did the same thing with the name Adam. Genesis 5, 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam in the day that God created man. He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and called them. Now, in our New King James, it says mankind, but the word in the original is the word Adam. It's the same word that's used when it says the genealogy of Adam. So he created them male and female and blessed them and called them together Adam, in the day that they were created. So the woman takes the man's name. In Isaiah 4.1, we read of this general, we read of this general practice in these words, Isaiah 4.1, and in that day, seven women, 
Now, let me explain. This was a time when many of the men had been uh, killed in battle and that sort of thing, when God had brought judgment upon them. So there weren't very many men around. And Isaiah 4, 1 says, And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own food and wear our own apparel. In other words, we'll provide for ourselves financially. Only let us be called by your name to take away our reproach so that they could then have legitimate children through their husband that they were asking to to take them. They say, "We'll, we'll provide for ourselves, but just let us be called by your name. This speaks of the unity that we have with Christ, taking his name. We are given his name. Indeed, we are called Christians when we become the bride of Christ. And here in the Song of Solomon, when he calls us to return to him after we have drifted away, he calls us, we could translate it, Mrs. Solomon, Shulamite, reminding us that we belong wholly to him and therefore ought wholly to return to him. It's understandable how we might be insecure in returning to him. After we have repulsed him the way that we did, he is a holy and majestic king. Who are we to turn him away at the door as we had done? He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the very son of God. And we are of the fallen race of Adam who have shown ourselves once again to be unworthy of him. But his invitation is clear. He is gracious and welcoming a gracious and welcoming husband who wants us to return with full confidence in his love and his acceptance. He wants us to enjoy again the peace and the joy that we had lost. He wants us even to celebrate our restoration to him with undiluted joy and gladness. You can see in you, you can see in the last you can see this in the last part of verse 13. He tells us that he wants to look upon us with his friends. Return, return, that we may look upon you, he says. Now we've seen how he delights in our beauty. How he loves to visit his garden and see the bride that he has himself sanctified and blessed. And to see the fruit that is growing up. He loves to see the fruit of his garden. How he's ravished with but one look of our eyes how he delights in tasting of our fruits. And you remember, we saw before how he invited his friends to come and rejoice in those fruits with him. Remember that though it uses the analogy of the sexual relationship, we're not talking about a sexual relationship. We're talking about the the spiritual relationship we have with him, whereby we bring forth fruit that delights him, and he comes and partakes of that fruit, and he invites his friends, come and, and enjoy my garden with me. Yes, we present ourselves to our Lord, and it is our love for him that he wants to see most of all. When we come to the church, the trysting place, the assembly of God, we are to present the fruit that he has given us to him. We come before him, we present ourselves to him, and he delights in that fruit, and we look to him to tend his garden, to feed us, to fertilize us, to nourish us, so that we'll bring forth even more fruit. But you see, along with the fruit of our love and our affection for him, which is what he especially delights in, he also wants to see the rest of the fruit that he brings forth in us. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Or Ephesians 5.9 puts it in other words. It says, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. In John 15, he tells us to abide in him as a vine so that we can bring forth much fruit and that he will delight in that fruit. And the fruit that he especially mentions there is again love, but closely related and second to that, he mentions joy as a fruit that he, he and the Father will delight in. So the fruit that he speaks about in particular is love, but the ne- next to that is joy, that we should be filled with joy because of our relationship with him and the salvation that he has procured for us. That's what he wants to see when he looks at us. These are the flowers and the fruits that grow in his garden as his bride that he has taken to be his own bride. And here at the end of verse 13, on this occasion, the occasion when we have returned to him, what does he want to see? Especially since we have just returned. Joy. He wants to see the delight that we have to be with him again to be fully restored. He doesn't want that joy to be mixed with insecurity or uncertainty of his acceptance. He wants full, unbridled joy. The desire, of, the, the desire that he has is presented with a question. This desire of his is presented with a question. What would you see in the Shulamite? In other words, what do you want to see in her now that she has returned? Now, it's hard to tell who asked this question. Okay? Some think it's the Shulamite asking, you know, what would you see in the Shulamite? What would you see in me? Coming back knowing that she has treated him wrongly. Some think that the beloved is asking it as a rhetorical question, a question that he is going to answer himself. You know, what do I want to see in my bride? He's, he's bringing it out like that. Others think that it is his friends whom he has invited to enjoy the fruits of his garden. Because you see, there is a plural that's going on in this passage. With the, the ones that, come to en- that he invited to enjoy the garden with him in the past. Remember, we talked about that before. And what do we, who do we say those friends are? Well, there's certainly the Father and the Spirit who are his friends. The whole Trinity delights to see the bride of Christ coming back and being united with Christ again. There is joy in heaven. Not only those, though, but we're told that the angels rejoice. Those are Christ's friends. When the bride comes back, there is celebration and happiness in heaven. And not only that, but also even the ministers, the shepherds, and the watchmen of the church who have been praying and calling on the name of the Lord and looking to Him, interceding for, for the bride to, to return. I mean, they are part of the bride themselves, but we've talked about how the bride ministers and edifies herself and ministers to and edifies herself. And here, they are His friends that rejoice when she comes back. You know, those that perhaps didn't go away. People like Daniel during the captivity who are praying and crying out to the Lord for the, for the restoration of His people. It really doesn't matter who asks the question. I'd say that it is the friends. That would, be, that would be my choice from the context here. But it really doesn't matter. We're not told. What matters is the answer. What does he want to see in the Shulamite? Now that she has been restored to him, he wants to see her as the dance of two camps, is how it's described. These are the words, the dance of two camps. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, the word translated dance means dance. (laughs) That's exactly what it means. The two camps could be translated a lot of different ways. Two armies, two hosts, like even the hosts of heaven could be referred to here. Two companies. There are many ways to translate it. But it seems that what he wants to see in the Shulamite's return is unmitigated joy such as is beautifully expressed in a celebratory dance. He wants her to go, as our psalm that we're going to sing in a little bit, Psalm 30 teaches us, from from sorrow to dancing full of joy. She has been restored to him, and it is an occasion for joyous celebration. Her friends make up one company, and I mean, I mean, his friends, sorry, his friends make up one company, the angels, the Father, the Spirit, the uh, ministers, whoever's in that company, and his bride makes up the other company, and together they celebrate with unspeakable joy that she is united again to her husband. Like the prodigal son, she has come back to him, and Jesus, like the father in the parable, wants to have a great celebration. He wants to see the dance of two camps, the angels and all his friends rejoicing and his bride rejoicing together. Or some would say that the bride is herself the two camps because she's a whole company of people. And just the fullness is described as a double, like when, um, like when the, this word was first used, the Hebrew word Manaheim, when it was used with uh, Jacob, when he saw the two camps of angels that were there that comforted him. George Burroughs brings out well what this is getting at, though, with the rejoicing and the beauty of that joy going on as depicted here. He says, I quote, The beloved would say that she whose loveliness in his eyes he had been illustrating by so many comparisons was an object of more delightful contemplation to him than bands beautifully attired mingling in a sacred dance on a day of public rejoicing. Here was a source of pleasure, such as is felt from gazing on the combination of lovely forms, okay, a whole company of people, of lovely forms crowning with their elegance of form, shape, beauty of dress, and grace of movement some public festal scene. More beautiful than when on the shore of the Red Sea, Miriam took a timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances, Exodus 15, 20. Then when David, more beautiful than when David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet and with cymbals making noise with psalteries and harps, leaping and dancing before the Lord, 1 Chronicles fifteen twenty six. Do you see... In all of this, the great love of our Lord for us as his church, it should be precious to us that he not only rejoices at the fact of our restoration, but also he rejoices to see us rejoice in that restoration. He wants to see our joy. Think of the whole church in all ages. Okay, let's back up and look at the big picture and what do we see of the church? Okay, here the whole world is fallen. God comes to his people. He calls them out, brings them out of Egypt, establishes them in the land as his people, takes them as his bride, teaches them in his ways, 
blesses them, prospers them as his own wife, and then there is rebellion on their part, that they become cold-hearted like we saw here that the bride had done. And then after that, what happens? He sends them to Babylon. He withdraws from them. He destroys the temple so that the trysting place is not even there anymore. And they're off carried away to Babylon. The whole time he's watching over them that the fruit will come forth that he desires from sending them to Babylon. And then they come back and they're restored. But they're, they're brought back to the land from Babylon. But there's an uneasiness in them. There's an insecurity. They build the temple again, but it's not even as great as the temple that Solomon had built. And there is weeping. There is a, there is, things have been lost. It's not what it was. There's an insecurity there, an uncertainty. But then what happens? In the fullness of time, God sends forth His Son. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes from heaven and He comes and He accomplishes the work of redemption before the eyes of the whole world, showing the salvation of God and how we are reconciled through the blood of the Lamb of God who came from heaven to atone for our sins. And there is full justification and every reason for security and unmitigated joy because of our full and free acceptance in Him. That is what becomes of His bride. She has every reason. The New Testament emphasizes joy because our redemption has now been accomplished. It has been revealed. Christ is crucified. We see the foundation of how God has reconciled us to Him. We have every reason for encouragement, and He wants us to have this unmitigated joy. This is also not only for the whole church, as I say, that's the bride of Christ that I was just speaking of, but this is also applies and pertains to you individually as well. Whatever you may have done, whatever sins you may have committed against the Lord, however great they may be, His word to you is, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return. Return, return, Mrs. Solomon, return, return. Let your joy be full. Don't come in some half-hearted way wallowing in your past sins as if they have not been fully atoned. Let there be no half-hearted returns to our Lord and Savior, only full returns, only joyful returns. He will be delighted to see you bask in the fullness of His saving work and in the complete acceptance that you have by Him. Please stand and let's join our hearts in giving thanks to the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and blessed Holy Spirit, we come before you now with thanksgiving, O Lord, because of the deep affection and love that is revealed to us, that you have, that you have toward us, that is revealed to us in the Song of Solomon. We thank you, O Lord, that here we learn of the delight that you have in your bride. We learn of the, the joy you have in our progress and the fruit that we bring forth. We learn that even when we are separated from you, when you have had to turn away from us because of our sin, that even then you are still near to us. You're still tending to your garden. Even then you're looking to bring forth fruit 
to see the, the budding pomegranate, to see the flowers starting to blossom again, and to bring forth those affections from your bride that you so delight in. We thank you that you are a master gardener and that your work never fails. We thank you, Lord, that our security is not in what we are as the garden, but what you are as the gardener. It is the gardener who makes the garden. And the gardener in this case is one who never fails. And so we praise you, O Lord, for the hope and the confidence and assurance that that gives us. We pray, Lord, that when we come back to you, that we would have tremendous joy knowing that we are fully restored through our Lord Jesus Christ, that there is nothing outstanding against us, that the record is completely cleared by the blood that was shed on the cross. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We pray that we would not come in a half-hearted way as if we really can't come to you or shouldn't come to you or, or whatever, that we would come with boldness that you have told us to come in that way with confidence in the new and living way that has now been fully revealed from heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ coming into this world. Thank you that your salvation has been openly revealed in the sight of the nations. May we spread the word of the good news of the gospel to all around us. And we pray, Lord, that the nations would come and rejoice with us and praise God with us for the mercy that he has shown to us, his people, that they would come to join with us and to want to be reconciled to you also, Lord, that they might know the joy of your salvation. Father, help us to be filled with joy that pleases you. Help us not to be those who act as if we have been put upon or as if we have been somehow deprived of something. But Lord, help us to come knowing the fullness of the blessing that we have in your salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The blessing of the Lord our God. Now, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.